This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show, we're going to react to some news about three UFC events that have been announced for Jacksonville, Florida. We have a nice long conversation with Frank Mir. He's done with Bellator. He wants to get back into commentating. We'll talk to him about that. Plus, Cobb and I rewatched Enter the Dragon and Rocky IV. We have some assessments about it as we head into the finals of our Ultimate Fight Movie Bracket Challenge. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here at 3 p.m. East Coast time on Sirius XM Channel 156. And don't forget about the mailbag, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. I'm going to give this to you as it comes into uh, my email box here. The UFC has announced a not only UFC 249 for May 9th, but three events. The, here's the title of the email sent to me. UFC announces trio of events. UFC returns to action with stacked card headlined by interim lightweight championship. Octagon makes first ever appearance in Jacksonville, Florida, with a trio of events at the Star Veterans Memorial Arena. All right, so here is who is on the card. As we know, uh, it'll be uh, Tony versus Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje, Francis Ngannou versus Jair Rosenstruck, Jeremy Stevens, Calvin Cater, Donald Cerrone, Anthony Pettis, Greg Hardy taking on Jorgen DeCastro, uh, Fabricio Ferdoom taking on Alexi Olenek, Ryan Spann versus, I'm not sure, oh, Sam Alvey, Carla Esparza taking on Michelle Waterson, Uriah Hall taking on Jacare Souza, Vicente Luque taking on Nico Price, Bryce Mitchell taking on Charles Rosa. Here's the deal beyond that, though. Um, they're going to have uh, this card. Uh, yeah, and oh, by the way, Henry Cejudo taking on Dominic Cruz. This card is going to be, the quote, the first of three events taking place at the Vistar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville on Florida May, uh, May 9th, 13th, and 16th, respectively. So let me pull this up. So that means that they're going to have, let's do, uh, let's see if they're on May 9th, excuse me. Yes, May 9th is a Saturday. May 13th is a Wednesday. And then the 16th is the following Saturday. So you're going to get three events, 9th, 13th, 16th, all at the same arena, uh, all in Jacksonville, North Carolina, excuse me, Florida. What am I saying? Now, the UFC has also released a statement on health and safety. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety because I feel like that's the appropriate thing to do. Health and safety have long been a priority for the UFC, and we have set the standards for our industry in light of the current circumstances. We plan to implement further enhanced safety measures as we return to producing live events. UFC events scheduled for May 9th, 13th, and 16th at Vistar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida will be fully sanctioned by the Florida State Boxing Commission and will comply with all the regulations governing professional MMA events. We have worked closely with our medical staff and state and local officials, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Jacksonville Mayor Lenny Curry, and Florida State Boxing Commission Executive Director Patrick Cunningham to ensure the appropriate health and safety protocols are in place. Pursuant to a request from the Florida State Boxing Commission, these events will be closed to the public and will be produced with only essential personnel in attendance. All athletes and staff will be required to adhere to a number of precautionary measures, such as participating in advanced medical screenings and temperature checks and following social distancing guidelines. I don't know how you do that in a fist fight, but okay. On behalf of all the fans, athletes, and employees, UFC thanks Governor Ron DeSantis, Jacksonville Mayor Lenny Curry, the Commission in Florida, and their Executive Director, Patrick Cunningham, and our media partners, including ESPN and ESPN Plus, for their support as we resume our events. So there you have it. It is back in uh, business, at least for now. We will see how things go. But um, the UFC will be in Jacksonville, Florida, at least to get things started, up and until, I guess, I guess Nevada opens up. <laughs> Because uh, I'm assuming that they would much rather be in Nevada than the Vistar Veterans Memorial Arena in Florida. Um, so, look, I, my position on this doesn't change. You know, all of this is a function of risk assessment. We went over what Jacksonville situation was as it relates to the COVID-19 outbreak. They have a relaxed social distancing guidelines, for example, with the beach. Um, what role that will play is a function of what your risk management is. I don't know exactly the full protocol of everything that's going down in Florida, but I hope to find out. And 
we'll see how it goes. Um, but this is not exactly the same situation as it was on April 18th. We now have a state commission sanctioning it, albeit one that's not all that great. And we have probably more advanced protocol. My, that's going to be my hunch. Um, that will... I mean, look, the UFC doesn't want a problem, right? They want to get through this as easily and as quickly and as best as they can. So they're going to do that probably. Um, and that's where we are. Uh, I, I, by the way, I think there's news on Fight Island. It's coming. I'm not entirely certain. I guess June is what they're saying. There's going to be a June... Uh, yeah, Fight Islands will have no fans and the Octagon will be on the beach. Which, by the way, uh, is what Bodog Fights did 15 years ago. So, you know, keep that in mind. I do not think this is the same situation as before. Um, but, you know, what kind of risk they are posing, we're just going to have to see. I'm going to be as curious an observer on this as everybody else. I've had, you know, like I said, dude, I've had what I've had. I have made my points about the risk. Um, this to me is a less of a risk, but still one just the same. And uh, we'll see how it goes, folks. But there's some events coming. Three cards in 10 days. No, excuse me. Three cards in basically seven days. What am I even saying? So a lot of MMA is coming your way once May kicks off, unless something happens between now and then. But with the state lifting social distancing guidelines, it seems like to an extent, and um, and the commission being involved, it's a, diff it's a different thing. Let's get to this second piece of uh, news here that I thought was kind of interesting. So we had heard that if you were on the UFC London card, the UFC tried to make things right by paying people, which of course we always appreciate here, and we acknowledged, I think, without much equivocation. I, ho I hope that we did. But it turns out there might be more to the story. Isn't that always the case in MMA? Right, especially with a promotion doing good news. It's like, oh, they're doing X. And then you find out later, it's like, yeah, but there's why. Well, here's the why. Uh, according to ESPN's Ariel Hawani, quote, speaking about UFC London, I'm told the fighters who were slated to compete on the ill-fated UFC London card on March 21st received no more than $20,000. As you can imagine, some of the higher earners aren't too pleased with that amount, while others were happy to get something for nothing. All right, so what do we make of this? Well, I think partly you can take it at face value. If you were a lower-ranked fighter on that card, um, and you got 20 or something less than that, and you didn't even compete, you might feel grateful that some money came your way at all. I think that's real. I think that's important. And I think that's worth accepting on its own terms. If you don't have a lot and someone just shows you a generous response like this, um, being grateful should not be mocked or undermined. And I won't do it. On the other hand, if you are entitled to significantly more than that and everything collapses on its own, you would have hoped that you would have gotten... A lot more than, you know, a fraction, let's say, of what you were entitled to. $20,000 is just enough, maybe, maybe, uh, if you're an elite-level fighter to pay your coaches, right? It's not much. Especially you have to pay tax and everything else. So I can understand in that particular situation, everything you were supposed to do, you did. You might have even risked your health to get ready for it and travel, depending on who you are. And then in the end, you have just enough to pay your coaches and taxes, and that's it. If that. All right. I can understand that perspective as well. Let me give you two responses to this in general, aside from the general take that I just gave, which is, first things first. <laughs> I bring this up all the time, man. This is why I just wish there was a fighter union so I wouldn't have to care about these things anymore and then adjudicate them. Because the right answer in this situation is not, is not all that obvious. I had said that the UFC should offer a stipend. They're giving people up to 20 grand. Again, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but they're giving people up to 20 grand for, for not even fighting. Technically, that meets the definition of what I had asked. So I can't really get out here and say, oh, they're being, they're being tightwads. They're being cheapskates. On some level, they're doing what 
people asked of them. Maybe not as much as you kind of thought, but eh, by the letter of the law, they're getting it done. But anytime you're relying on someone else's generosity, I'm not going to say it never goes the way that it's supposed to, but I'm going to say in general it doesn't. Relying on generosity from institutions, generosity from, you know, the elite and the rich, yeah, man, on occasion they'll cover everything and then some, and it's the most glorious day in the world. But in general, if you want the best terms possible, then you have to force them to do it, in this particular case, by virtue of collective bargaining. If there was a collective bargaining agreement, there would be a rule in place that says if you book a fight and these people agree to do it, and then by no fault of their own, the whole thing goes away, you owe them X amount. And we wouldn't even have to have this conversation. I wouldn't even bring it up. I might tell you as a bit of a three to know, oh, hey, UFC London got canceled. Per the terms of the uh, CBA, they're entitled to blah, 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 blah. And that'd be the that'd be the uh, that'd be the beginning end of it. And I might comment on whether or not the CBA is good enough. We'll talk about it again in two years, and that's it. That that'd be the conversation. But instead, you have to rely on corporate generosity, and so it leaves open to interpretation all, any variety of viewpoints. Well, they're giving when they don't have to. For some, it's a lot. For a lot, it's not enough. And so you end up in the situation where there's total lack of clarity. I, it just kills me, man. There are so many situations where if there was a fighter's union to do their bidding, we would have so much less problem. We could talk about so many different things. And again, if there was a fighter union, on top of the fact that there might be some kind of you know, rule in place for a situation like this, they might also be getting TV money, in which case they wouldn't be as reliant on the $20,000 the UFC was handing out. They might even be able to have sponsors, in which case they wouldn't be as reliant as they are on the UFC for 20000 I mean, there's so many different ways that financial compensation could be adjusted so that you wouldn't have to parse whether or not this particular payout was sufficient with your expectation. So I'm not even really going to be mad at the UFC, to be honest with you. I mean, it sounds like, you know, they could have paid more. I probably believe they could have paid more. Leslie Smith said she got more than double that for not fighting for the Bellator card. You know, take that for whatever you want. Um, UFC also intends to give all these people their fights for the, for the year. So, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just not really going to bash it. But here's the thing that I will say. For some people, this is definitely not going to be enough. And for some people who are more senior fighters who did everything they were supposed to uh, and didn't get it, this is going to be a real punch in the gut. You're like, well, okay, it's better than nothing, but if I did everything I was supposed to and it all collapsed without any fault of my own, shouldn't I be entitled to more? And you can have that conversation, right? But, but this idea that you can just rely on the UFC or, frankly, and I mean this sincerely, any organ, any corporate entity to just do the right thing. I hear this all the time in MMA. I trust this organization or that organization. And by the way, what I'm, a, what I'm saying does not merely apply to UFC. You hear it everywhere. I trust them to do the right thing. Really? You know what I trust? I trust contracts. I trust collective bargaining agree agreements that force both sides to adhere to an agreement. And you could say, oh, we have contracts already. Yeah, but they're all one-sided, right? Because we've discussed this before. The industry tilts strongly against the fighters in virtually every capacity. Oh, I trust the organization to do the right thing. Can we stop leaving this to trust? <laughs> make rules. Make agreements. Make those agreements take place under fair circumstances. And then let's just worry about compliance. I am so tired of having to live in a situation where we're relying on trust. I trust Amazon to keep their prices low. <laughs> I mean, they might keep their prices low to undercut every other business. That's about the only way I would quote unquote trust them. 
I trust Chipotle not to get me sick anymore because they've gotten people sick so many times. Yeah, word. You trust them? I don't trust Chipotle to not put rhino virus in my barbacoa at all. Still going to eat there probably if it opens back up, but I'm just saying. I hear this all the time. I trust this organization. I trust that organization. I trust the third organ. Why? Why? They're going to try and do what's best for them. Not even necessarily in a negligent or some kind of way that shows malfeasance. But they're going to take care of their bottom line. They're going to take care of their bottom line in the way that they feel is best for them. And that's entirely understandable. That's why you've got to force them to do as much as you can under different circumstances. I I bring this up all the time, and I'll say it a thousand times until it sinks in on someone's brain. I don't trust corporations generally. Which isn't to say I think they're all breaking the law, and I don't mean that, or that they're, you know, they're all they're creating defective products. I don't mean that. What I mean is the best situation that you can have is one where rules are created in a in a fair and reasonably transparent way, and then what you worry about is merely compliance to them. And that's that. That's your best bet this time and frankly every time. It's all I care about. It's all I worry about. I think all these other systems are deeply and profoundly inferior. And I think just relying on a corporation of any sort in any sector to quote unquote do the right thing. No, make them do the right thing. Whatever you think that right thing is. Because they don't see that as the right thing. They see that as the wrong thing for them. To an extent, they might have an argument. So if you want to get what you want, stop relying on, uh, oh, well, let's see what they are willing to comply with in a situation where it's merely generosity in the moment. You're never going to get, look, even with a collective bargaining agreement, you're not going to make everybody happy, right? It's It's not a solution to all of our problems. If I've been selling it that way, I'll walk it back. I don't want you to think that either. But relative to the consistent problems that we have now, where people constantly in this business, for Bellator, for UFC, for any promoter, for any entity, keep relying on the good faith of it and the generosity. Oh, they'll come to see our interests as we see them. Why? They're not you. They can't. It's not possible for them to see your interests as you do. That's why you have to fight for them. That's the, that, that's the whole game. That's the entire business. That's how it works. They take care of their interests the best that they can and in conjunction with what they see um, in accordance with their vision. You do the same with yours. There's going to be some alignment there, but probably not enough. And you have to negotiate the difference between that. You probably both won't get everything you wanted, but certainly if you're the fighter side, you've got room to grow to get more of what you are hoping to get. So I just don't want to hear these things anymore. Like, well, you know, they're just disappointed they didn't get more. Why would you be disappointed you didn't get more? Did you think that they saw your financial situation the way you do? Why would you think that? They can't. It's not in their interest or their vision to do that. Doesn't even mean that they're bad people. They just have a competing set of interests. And that's going to define their worldview. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated. None of this is hard to understand. Unless you just willfully decide, I'm not going to do anything to fight for it. Well, then keep hoping that the tooth fairy leaves more than a quarter under your pillow. I don't know what else to say to you. This week on World of Basketball, Australia's five-time Olympian and FIBA Hall of Famer Andrew Gaze explains how the 1992 Dream Team helped change basketball around the world. Well, I think first and foremost, basketball became the most watched and one of the most significant events of the 92 Olympics because of it. 
and the way in which the, the culture of basketball and the popularity of basketball is growing, that what it also did is that we knew that they were going to dominate, but it gave the rest of the world a chance to compete against these players. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app and Pandora. All right, Luke Thomas Show, we're back. All right, joining me now on the hotline is uh, a man who has worn many hats, commentator, fighter for different organizations. He just finished up his run with Bellator and is looking for some new adventures, it seems. It's the one and only Frank Mir. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. Thanks. Frank, uh, you're in Las Vegas, right? I am. home. How is Vegas? It seems like they ha- I mean, everything's closed, <laughs> I get, but it seems like Nevada's done a pretty good job at uh, keeping things from getting too out of hand. Yeah, actually, our numbers are pretty low. Uh, uh, I think for as, as far as this being such a mecca of travel, you know, uh, shutting things down as early as we did, I think helped keep everything, uh, you know, the lid down. Are you as, uh, are you as tortured is not the right word. I just can't read any more Corona news, man. Like every day, and I realize every day there's a critical new update one way or the other. I'm tired. I'm tired of reading the news about it, aren't you? Yeah, I kind of go in waves now where, you know, there'll be two or three days where I can't stop searching and looking and, and, and trying to find things. And then I'll, I think I hit a peak where I'm just like, all right, now I'm just going to veg out on Futurama and just be brainless <laughs> for the next couple of days because I just just there really isn't anything beneficial I'm learning. It's just more just of sombering, just the same you know news over and over again that really nobody knows. Right. And it doesn't change. Like if you read that news on a Tuesday. Doesn't really change your Wednesday, does it? Your Wednesday is still going to happen just the same inside. It's like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this information. I agree. Yeah, I, I just wish that, you know, obviously, I mean, uh, it's not to anybody's fault that we don't know more. <clears throat> but, I mean, I think it's just um, the uncertainty of the future right now is what just, you know, stresses everybody else out the most, you know. But, I mean, that's just the reality of the situation we're in. There is no forecasting the future of the situation. Just we're all in it from day to day. All right, so let's talk about you here for a second. So the reports came out, uh, I forget where I saw it exactly, but that you had finished your run with Bellator. So first things first, this is true, yes? Yeah, I had one more fight with Bellator, but um, obviously my contract was coming to an end there. And uh, (laughs) it was ending there April 1st. And so with everything that came up, uh, I had a conversation with Scott and was able to uh, come to a, a decent middle ground where Basically, I'm a free agent. You know, if if uh, there's room and, and a situation arises where I can fight again for Bellator, you know, the door's still open. But right now, I can go and uh, start looking in other areas because, uh, you know, especially with the way things are internationally, you know, some other country might open up first for fights. The U.S. might not. You know, right now with us having the numbers that we're having, um, we might be behind on you know as far as opening up to putting on events. So. Let's assume for just the moment, which may not be the case in the future, but let's assume for the sake of this conversation that, that, that um, your run with Bellator is over for good. You go somewhere else. Um, did you get what you want? Did you get what you wanted out of your Bellator chapter? Well, um, obviously, I wanted to be more successful with the Fedor fight. You know, uh, uh, two years off, I made a mistake in the fight, you know, and uh, you know, that'll always be something that uh, bothers me. But, um, you know... Uh, I've always looked at fighting for me has always been a fight by fight situation, you know, whether winning titles or championships or going down and winning records, never really been my motivating factor. It's always been about me out there presenting uh, what I can do and then going back to the lab and trying to improve upon it. So having situations where I have shortfallings, you know, that always upsets me. And, you know, but I mean, also too, at the same time, maybe if I had, you know, succeeded more than I failed, I wouldn't be still motivated at 40 years of age to, to still fight. Do you, at 40, do you feel, actually, let me ask you this way. What what do you want left? I will talk about the commentary in just a minute. But from the fighting perspective, like what's left? You were a multiple-time champion. You've been in some of the biggest fights on some of the biggest cars against some of the biggest opponents. You did a lot. Um, what like What is the remaining motivation? Is it merely the desire to compete? Yeah, you know, which I think is pretty much the reason why I've always fought my whole life. I like competing, and, and, I, and I find it strange that people have a hard time understanding that because I feel like that's the majority of everybody that does martial arts or does anything competitively. Most people are never going to get paid well enough to do what they love to just do that. 
they're going to have to have a day job. And then when they get off of work, they go to the range or they go to the gym and they go and they, they, they indulge in their, their love. Um, <clears throat> I just happened to be lucky enough that I got paid to do what I love to do. So my motivating factors are still the same. I, I like to compete. I like to go out there and, and fight. I like the lifestyle behind it. So I'm going to continue to do so until it becomes a point where just it's it's unsafe for me to do so. I think it's a fair point you raise about people not understanding why you would want to keep competing. Fair enough. On the other hand, though, wouldn't the counter to that argument be, sure, there might be a burning desire that remains. This is something you've been good at for a long time. But the accumulation of damage, I mean, your motorcycle accident was, what, 2004 or something, yeah. something like that? And then I think in the Javier Ayala fight, didn't you break the roof of your mouth? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, which is a terrible, I mean, I'm not trying to bring it up. It's a terrible injury. Yeah. I'm just saying over time, you're like, shit, man, that's a lot, you know? Yeah. But I think, uh, like most, again, hobbies that guys get into or sports or just any kind of, uh, endeavor that you love to do, you know, uh, look guys, you know, guys that climb rocks, they fall down. Guys like to go for runs. I mean, you know, uh, you know, blow out their knees, you know, just, you know, how many guys in the gym that I lift weights with that I train with that have injuries that you've never seen, they're never going to compete or never going to be, you know, cash a paycheck doing what they love to do, but they still drag themselves to the gym. They still show up and compete. Uh, it has to be something besides just financial acquisition, you know, I, and, and Hey, look, that's nice. And I always tell people the joke is that I'm lucky enough. I get paid to what I do because that way, you know, when I go to the gym, my wife, she, she likes it where other people, they sit there, they get off of an eight hour, nine hour shift they tell their wife or their significant other that they're going to go hang out. Uh, they're going to uh, uh, <laughs> probably get a little bit of uh, resistance, you know. But where my wife is like, ah, that's fine. Go ahead. Go work. <laughs> mm. I've, I've often wondered this. Has no, like, well, Metamorris is not around. But there's, you know, Jiu-Jitsu has this new present circumstances notwithstanding with the pandemic. Has this new, like, pro side of the sport that, frankly, 10 years ago, did not exist in the way that it does now. Have you never been approached for that? I would have thought you'd have been a top candidate for some of these some of these events. Yeah, but the only thing is, is I'm very honest with what I'm good at. Uh, rule sets make it different. And, and I mean, we can have a, an in-depth conversation where I can point out to where, you know, there's certain maneuvers and certain submission holds and certain ways of using the guard, for example, that you can do in a, in a grappling match. And they look different from gi to no gi to submission only. And it looks different in MMA fight. Uh, my whole life, I've always been enamored with fighting, you know, and, and being as close to a, a fight as possible. And I've always felt that's what MMA is, is drawing me in. Whereas I don't specialize in submission only grappling, you know, uh, and I can point out, you know, again, you know, I'm not faulting it. I, I think that it's a great addition to build people up and get into it. But at the highest levels, some of those guys specialize. Um, I wouldn't be very good at it, you know, uh, you know, self-admittedly um, because of the fact that, you know, there's certain positions I train for that, well, okay, well, I would get punched if I went for this here. I'd be fighting my own reaction system. I think once I'm done fighting professionally, to sit down and rewire my brain and how it works to just work on training that um, is definitely an option because I want to compete again, even with the gi. I think those are definitely things that will allow me to compete going, you know, into my, uh, you know, <laughs> midnight <laughs> of my uh, life. Um, not taking the abuse, uh, uh, you know, to the head, but at the same time, again, you know, just, you know, um, the rule system's different. You know, there's guys that are extremely good at some of the, uh, especially like the submission only grappling that they're never going to be good unless they completely revamp their game. That game won't transfer over to MMA. Hmm. So would you say, last thing on this and I'll move along, but would you say that your jujitsu, four jujitsu rules, and again, they differ across EBI yeah. versus IBG. Has that deteriorated uh, by virtue of focusing on MMA? I would say it would be a safe uh, statement. Yeah, my jiu-jitsu is basically focused on fighting. Um, you know, it would be like a boxer who's very good at boxing, but then he goes into MMA and trains just his boxing for MMA to sit there and go, well, I'll jump back into boxing and compete at a high level. It's like, uh, are you really? Are you being realistic about this? You're going to compete against an other high-level boxer who's only been training boxing. Um, 
it just that's that's a far reach. I mean, I mean, you look at it now. I haven't pointed out. I guess the best analogy I can use is if you look at freestyle wrestling and Greco-Roman wrestling. Um, back, you know, 50 years ago, you had guys that could go to the Olympics and medal in both. That hasn't been the case for decades. Guys that are phenomenal Greco guys don't just sit there and go, well, I'm the next weekend, I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to go do freestyle. And vice versa, freestyle guys don't jump into the Greco tournament and compete very well. Even though it's wrestling, it's a different rule system. And each guy at the highest level specializes. Not that each guy couldn't go to a local tournament and do extremely well. Not that he's not still good at it. But as far as competing at the highest enchilance of his of that sport, it's being unrealistic that you can jump back and forth between rule sets. So let me ask you this then, because you actually piqued my interest with something, which is when Clarissa Shields says she's going to fight Amanda Nunes in MMA, I just don't... I mean, I take Clarissa Shields seriously as a boxer, but I don't take her chances against Amanda Nunes, especially seriously. And I think Jorge Masvidal is one of the best boxers we have in MMA, but against Canelo, I don't really like his chances. That being said, let me ask this. What would be the upper bound limit of an MMA fighter. So think about the best MMA fighter in terms of boxing that you've seen. How far could they get if transitioning over to boxing within a fight or two? What's the what's a reasonable assumption there? Um, you know what? There's so many variables in that, but the problem is is how soon they can rewire the reaction system. You know, there's certain things that are allowed in boxing that aren't allowed, or excuse me, in MMA that aren't allowed in boxing. And so the stance is different. The punches are different. Even how you turn your shoulders is slightly different, defensive reactions. So to get there and sit there and go, well, I'm going to go ahead and go from boxing and go straight into, or from MMA right into boxing, I would tell somebody, it's like, well, <clears throat> how soon can you rewire your system? How soon for you to react like a boxer and not react like an MMA fighter? Hmm. And I think that varies from person to person. Different people, you know, once they're hardwired a certain way, it's very hard to add to that game. Some people are very flexible and could possibly go back and forth. And then, you know, and then maybe we have a conversation on our hands. But still, you know, to me, it'd be like sitting there going, okay, we're going to grab a decathlete who's really good at sprinting. How long before we make him a pure sprinter does he win sprinting events against the top level sprinters? Uh, that's hard, man. I, I don't think it's going to happen. Hmm. Interesting. All right, I want, I want to talk about your commentary future. I believe you're trying to uh, to get back out there, but I want to go backwards before we go forwards, if I can, just a little bit here. I know this is an indelicate question, so forgive me, but I have to ask it because I've always wondered. I wanted to hear it from you. You were a phenomenal commentator for WEC, but you were also fighting at the same time, and you had mentioned you would, again, in your fighting days in the, against Brock Lesnar, that uh, you had hoped at the time he would have been the first death uh, in the UFC or maybe sanctioned MMA or something like that. I forget the exact quote. Did that cost you your job? I don't think so. I think it was just really bad timing. Um, coincidence, just that uh, the WC shortly after that was actually absorbed by the, uh, the UFC. So the event was no longer more. Uh, I don't think I'm that special of a commentator that me losing my job would have caused the WEC to go under. But if you look at the time frame, uh, within a month of me not commentating, uh, and I pulled out normally because I was getting ready for a fight, then and that's why I was doing the interview, then the uh, WEC also uh, went under. Or was absorbed, I guess is the better. I see. Okay, so you had, because I recall famously the Anthony Pettis Showtime kick against Benson Henderson, that was Stefan Bonner who called that. So I guess right around that time, you must have been... I can't remember exactly what the month and year yeah, I was. Yeah, uh, I was getting ready to fight. That's why I was doing interviews about Lesnar. Got it. Okay. Well, I always thought you were the best commentator for WEC for a long time. Thanks, Yeah, well, you had, I remember this too, man. People don't remember this, but I do. Uh, when, when Jose Aldo fought uh, Pequeno Noguera, and you had talked about Noguera's famous guillotine, and folks did not yeah. know about that. It was so small details like that. What would you say is... Um, well, first of all, what do you enjoy about commentary? Like, what, what, what is it that appeals to you? Well, I, I really much enjoy sharing what I know about martial arts with other people because I feel like the more you know about something, the more you can enjoy it. So I think sometimes when people are watching a fight, uh, they might not understand the intricacies of what are going on. I've seen fights that are excellent fights that are just hard battles, and I hear people booing. And, and I always feel that like if they really knew what was going on between those two fighters, they wouldn't be booing. And that's what I really enjoy about commentary is that I can sit there and explain like, no, no, no. I know you think that nothing's going on, but really there's a big time battle occurring and this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And this is what 
each guy's fighting for. And that's why you're seeing sort of a stalemate here. But it's not a stalemate. You're just seeing, you know, it's a situation of, a, you know, uh, an unstoppable force meeting an unmovable object. And so it, it can be much more entertaining when you fully understand what you're looking at. I think some of the other sports like kickboxing and boxing don't necessarily need the uh, for the average fan who just shows up. Does it need to be as educated to understand what's going on? Oh, that guy's hitting that guy and the other guy fell down. Obviously, the more you do understand it, the more you enjoy it. Grappling is one of those areas that if you don't have a background in it, um, it's very hard to understand two guys just rolling around or pinned up against the cage what's going on. So that's what I really love about commentary is that, you know, my ability to, you know, break down things that all the fighters understand, but I'm able to relay it to where everybody who's never even stepped into a gym you know, one of the best compliments I ever got one time was a guy had walked up to me and said, hey, you know, I finally got my mother-in-law to watch fights. You were commentary and she tuned in and she hates the fights, but you started talking and now she's a fan because she finally understood what was going on in certain situations that she, you know, he had a couple of colorful terms for what she thought was going on on the ground. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it made sense to her. And, and I took that to heart. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about commentary. Uh, do you watch other sports, including boxing? I do. So uh, let's let's start here. Who are some of your favorite commentators in boxing? You know what? Actually, in the boxing area, I've always enjoyed, you know, back when he was able to before, you know, currently he doesn't, obviously, Emmanuel Stewart. I thought that, uh, you know, he really broke things down and made things to where you understood where things were coming from. So whenever he had his perspective. And, uh, and, and football, on the flip side, I'm a big fan of Tony Romo. I feel he also is able to explain things. And, and here, look, I only played football on a high school level. So watching, you know, some of the things that are occurring now, I'm lost. I don't know what's going on. But watching his breakdowns have also made me enjoy the sport that much more. Because now I'm like, oh, okay, that's what was going on. This is what was being thought about. Now that's why they chose to go this direction. And, uh, you know, those are just some people I really enjoy watching. I will say, too, I thought WEC got ahead of it for the time with you. Um, because now it's more common where you see like a DC or a cruise and they're really talking about underhooking and sort of to, to a, maybe to a fault, uh, depending on which fans you talk to. But for a time there, MMA wasn't really doing that. They were, they were, I, I, I would say, I don't know if they were discouraging people from going into detail, but there was, there was a long period there, let's say 2005 to 10-ish or so, maybe even longer than that, where you didn't get a lot of sophisticated breakdowns, where now it seems like the audience might be more ready for what the kind of commentary you were giving in your WEC days. I wonder what you make of that. Yeah, I think that obviously it was a good idea. So people just, you know, uh, you know that, that's how our sport is evolving in, in, in all different ways. Uh, you see inside the cage where guys will pick up different maneuvers and you're like, oh, well, and then the next thing you know is in the next year or two, everybody's using that type of technique or that strategy. Um, yeah, I think when I first started commentating, it was funny because I, I went to like, a, they, they, they made me go and, and take classes with a, uh, a, a commentator. I forgot where he was from. I don't remember the details. But one of the things I remember he told me that I completely threw out the window was that, you know, let the sport play itself out. You know, sometimes speaking less is better. <laughs> and, you know, and then I sat there and I, and I tried to a couple times not speak, you know, and just sit there and let the fight play out, you know. You know, the people are paying to watch the fight, not listen to me speak. And then I realized that I'm like, ah, oh, man, I can really, as a commentator, I think that you are the, you know, a referee has a lot of impact on a fight. I think for the people at home, a commentator can have just as much of an impact because I could commentate a fight two different ways. And one time, if we're ever in town together, we'll play this game together. We could put a fight on and I'll commentate one direction where I'm real biased towards one guy. And then we could play the same fight again and I can commentate it the other way, biased for the other guy, and completely change your perspective on what you're watching because of what you're hearing me say. And so I feel that the, the, that audio aspect of watching a fight, I take heart to that's very important. I think that explaining to the fans what's going on and also not being biased and not trying to sway you know, because I've seen in the past when I was younger, I, I used to do that. I had friends that were fighters and I would, you know, pick sides. Even if I didn't consciously say I was doing that, I went back and listened to myself and going, yeah, man, I'm obviously being biased here. 
and, and throughout my career, even from WC to, you know, going to ACB and, and working for XFN and the different shows I do now, I've taken that to heart not to do that. But just try to give information on what both guys are doing and really give props to both. And I think that it makes the fight much more enjoyable to have that added layer. In terms of current MMA commentators, do you have any favorites? Uh, I think Dominic Cruz is extremely intelligent, man. I mean, a lot of I mean, DC's good. A lot of the guys are really good, but uh, Cruz still says things sometimes that makes me go, "Huh, I didn't see that," you know. And, and I can't say that about a lot of other people in the sport. You know, I have to tell you, I am like, okay, so right, when I think of because it's never just one commentator, right? It's always a it's a partnership. So it's not really that individual commentator's ability, but how they groove together. And certainly DC is good enough where he can groove with just about anybody. And to your point, he's great. But for my money, Cruz is the best for this, virtually the same reason you identify, which is every fan's going to have something different that they want when they watch a fight. But I want to learn because I know Cruz knows significantly more than I ever will. I am, I am hoping to, to have wisdom imparted to me so that the next time I watch a fight, I can learn more. And I'm not saying that the fans have rejected that because I think that'd be an overreaction, but they, like, they mock him a little bit for his focusing on underhooking, and I'm like, that's like central, like inside space is central to understanding what happens. Is there a limit based on what you have seen with some of the fan reaction to what Cruz does, where a an eye for technical detail can actually repel fans? Well, I think that. Again, I treat it, too, like an educational experience. But also, too, I think you're juggling several things. I think that as a commentator, I remember one time, for example, someone criticized me because I explained that, oh, look how he's using his hand to hold down on the ankle to put pressure on the back of the head. And someone sat there, and I think they said, oh, he doesn't even know what rubber guard is. He didn't call it rubber guard. And, I, and, and I, my reply to that was, but neither do some of the fans at home that are watching if I sat there and became too technical and explained, oh, he's doing crackdown or, you know, or he got the lockdown position and he, he's going for the electric chair, like, they're going to look at me like, what is he talking about? And so that's one aspect of our sport is not being too technical to where with the terminology, you still got to realize that when I'm commentating, I'm always trying to commentate to that guy's mother-in-law. I want to explain it to somebody that's never been on a mat, never been inside a, a dojo, does have no clue what's going on because they understand it. And then also, too, you have to remember you have to keep it interesting. Um, if, you, if you feel like you're losing a connection with the fans, then it doesn't matter what good information. You're like that professor at school. You could be a phenomenal professor, but if you don't have a way of conveying that information to your students and don't make it interesting for them and don't keep it fresh, then they reject your knowledge, and now you both lose out. So I, I think as a commentator, I'm always trying to juggle that in my head. Did I use this phrase too much? Did I do this too much? Am I, what am I going for? Okay, in the last fight, I broke down this. In this fight, I'm going to break down this aspect because trying to look at the whole card in its entirety and not just sit there and go, okay, well, now he's in closed guard and explain what I've already explained five fights in a row where I can go ahead and say, okay, see, earlier tonight we saw this. I will use it to bounce off ideas. Where I'm like, okay, earlier in the night we saw the guy use the tight waist. Now we're seeing somebody actually defend it the proper way. Look how he's standing up. He's got his hips away. Pressure down on the hands, and you can use it that way. And But that way you're building on lessons and not just constantly just regurgitating the same thing over. Sometimes people don't really want the same point hammered home. Uh, and by the way, Frank, I know you got a podcast, Phone Booth Fighting, you do with Richard Hunter. You guys have a Patreon now, right? Patreon.com slash Phone Booth Fighting, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, you all are doing absolutely. what, a bunch of extra stuff on it? Yeah, we just, you know, Richard and I get together. We talk for about a half hour every day. And, you know, we keep up our free content, obviously, on our phoneboothfighting.com. And, but we also started to post some stuff on the Patreon just to get extra content since both of us are uh, <laughs> we're doing a lot of sitting at home lately. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I don't know what the next chapter holds really for any of us, but I hope to hear you on a microphone uh, sometime soon. And uh, if you want more information from Frank and more of his content, patreon.com slash phoneboothfighting. Frank, always good to catch up, man. Appreciate your time. Hey, man. Awesome talking to you. Man. Right, thank you. Take care. The Yakin Barack Show is your home for daily boxing coverage, but also brings you the biggest names in pop culture and entertainment. My pleasure to introduce CeeLo Green. Tune in to SiriusXM Fight Nation today at 1 p.m. Eastern for an A-list extravaganza featuring top comedians, actors, musicians, and more. We got the opportunity right now to have on the line Cheesy. The Yakin Barack A-list special airs only on your home for boxing, culture, and lifestyle. SiriusXM Fight Nation, Channel 156. Listen at home with Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, or however you stream in the house. 
If you're a Fight Nation fan, then you must be a fan of hard-hitting fight movies, too. I want you to hit me as hard as you can. The Luke Thomas Show has put together the ultimate fight movie bracket to see which film stands above the rest. It's not tournament. So go to at SiriusXM Fight Nation on Instagram to cast your vote and help us crown a champion. Now, let's hear about today's matchups. All right, we're back. Luke Thomas Show at MMA on SiriusXM on Twitter at SiriusXM Fight Nation on the old Instagram. All right, we have reached the home stretch. BXGS. Here we are. It is time for the final of the Ultimate Fight Movie Bracket Challenge. You guys ruined the semis, but the main event is could be redeeming. I mean, it's hard to go wrong either way if you're talking about the finals. Enter the Dragon versus Rocky. First things first, Cobb, how do they vote? Ah, we will have. By the way, this is going to be a two-day poll, so make sure you get to the poll today and Saturday. I will tally up the votes on Sunday. And we will have a grand champion. You can vote by going to our Twitter page, at MMA on SiriusXM. You will see a poll there. It will last for two days. Vote for your movie. You will also see a link to our Instagram, at SiriusXM Fight Nation. Click the stories. There will be a poll there each day. When one runs out, I will put a brand new one up. You'll see day one, day two. Vote in the stories on our Instagram, at SiriusXM Fight Nation. Very good. All right, so let's talk about this. We tasked ourselves with watching... Enter the Dragon and Rocky one more time just to be up to date on everything. Which one would you like to discuss first? Uh, let's go. We'll do Rocky Four first since it was the first entry. All right. Very good. Cobb, what was your review of Rocky Four? I actually have a note that this movie should lose based on the fact that the robot shows up within the first six minutes. That's a losing criteria oh, yeah. <laughs> for me, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it's not it's a great It's so movie. unnecessary. Yeah. Um, look, it has that awesome kind of 80s cheesiness to it, the awesomely bad soundtrack that is just amazing, which, by the way, I think I've recommended it on the show before, but I'll recommend it again. In the winter, if you have to shovel snow, play the Rocky Four soundtrack while you're doing it. It makes it feel a little bit better, and it feels like you're training for something. But... Uh, not quite an amazing film, just a good 80s movie, I guess. Yeah, that was my read on it, too. I thought Drago really stuck out to me in a way that I knew he would. You know, he made... He was he was everything that I thought he was at the time. But, you know, um, I, I have to give credit, and I've been ruined by this channel. Oh, no, that's not true. The channel has ruined things and then made things better. So it's been a net gain, but there's been some things lost. There is a YouTube channel, and I think it's run by like a film scholar. Whoever it is, he knows what he's talking about. It's called Every Frame is a Painting. And I discovered it because I was watching Akira Kurosawa, and I was looking up what other people had to say about his direction. Of course, he made you know, Yojimbo and Ran and Seven Samurai and a bunch of stuff. And Kurosawa is arguably, in my view, the very best movie director in any language in the 20th century. Put Spielberg to shame. Like, he is just another level, okay? And this guy would explain why. Yesterday, or maybe two days ago, Cobb, I saw a video he had done on what made Jackie Chan's fight scenes so great. And when he explains it, and then you contrast it with how everyone else does fight scenes, you go... God damn it. <laughs> Here's what I mean. If you notice, there's a real Eastern versus Western style of direction where um, what makes Jackie Chan's action scenes so good? One is that he does them like there's, there was one scene in one movie. He did 120 takes to get it just right. right? So one is this like relentless pursuit of perfection. But from a technical direction standpoint, there's a bunch of things that he does. One of them is they keep a wide-angle shot on everyone, and they don't move. So when someone throws a punch, you see the person, the person throwing the punch, and you see the punch land. The camera does not switch. It stays right on there. And when he's fighting, it's a wide-angle. You see everything. When a car hits him, you see the car coming. You see him get hit. You see him go flying, everything. And as we know, he does all of his own stunts. You, it, it makes everything look so much more realistic. This movie is the opposite of that. 
this movie has a lot of times where Rocky will have his back turned to you. Uh, there's camera switching. Or even when he's facing you and he's eating a jab. Um, he's eating a jab in a way where you can tell it's just it's just not well done. Where Drago will, will not necessarily be in the picture. They just don't do it in a way that's very convincing. So like to me, it's like if your movie is going to be derivative and jingoistic, you better have some goddamn good fight scenes, right? I mean, the, the, the Night Comes For Us is a stupid movie. <laughs> it's not good as movies are. But what makes it special, Cobb, and I went back and I rewatched parts of the fight scenes from The Night Comes For Us, sure enough, they do the Jackie Chan bit where they, they zoom out and they let everyone have contact with each other and the, and the camera just holds. It doesn't move. So you can see every piece of the action in full granular detail. No camera tricks whatsoever, right? And then I thought to myself, wow, the fight scenes aren't even that good. Now, they might be dramatic in terms of how they sold it. I was so underwhelmed by it. Yeah, I laughed. For the first time ever re-watching this movie, I realized that, especially with the sound effects they're using for when the punch lands in Rocky IV... Apollo dying from those shots is probably the most realistic thing to happen in any of the Rocky movies yeah. because yeah. he's just getting annihilated and it's this like big, it almost sounds like a, like a world, like a, like a cannon blast when they get hit. I was like, yeah, you know what? That's the most realistic thing that's ever happened in a Rocky film. Yep. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Um, so my thought is it confirmed for me that it's, I, I'm not sure what I was expecting. Maybe I thought I would pick up on nuances that I had lost over time. I didn't really feel that way other than I do agree that Ivan Drago comes across as a great villain. He comes across as scary. He comes across as intimidating, robotic. You know, he comes across as like Eastern German Olympic team coming out of the steroid era. You know, he's got that real vibe to him kind of thing. So in that sense, uh, I actually find him to be a more, con- not convincing, but... He's a more menacing villain than Han. Oh, way more. And I laugh. I'm like, if you're an American, the second you see him in that Russian military uniform, you instantly don't like him. Like, right away, you're like, oh, this guy. But even from when he kills Apollo to the, if he dies, he dies. By the way, he has, like, all the best quotes of the movie. Mm -hmm. All of them. Um, Just tall, towering over Sylvester Stallone. He is way more menacing and a, a way bigger villain than Han. For sure. Also, here's the other part about this. We'll get into this with Enter the Dragon, which is what kind of a movie is is Rocky Four? And the answer is a derivative of the original hard luck sports scrabble story, a hard luck scrabble story that is, you know, retrofitted or at the time anyway, I suppose, for jingoistic aims. Like it's not a unique kind of a movie. So I guess we just get into it. Dude, Enter the Dragon, I looked, I looked all this up, and I it's all true. Enter the Dragon is special. First of all, 1973 is when it came out, like a full decade before um, Rocky IV. It is a martial arts movie meets black exploitation meets big budget, you know, American action cinema. It's a very unique kind of movie. There actually are not a lot like that. Um, if you watch a black exploitation movie, so what is that? That is typically one of these movies where you have... You, it's commonly associated with uh, obviously black protagonists, but often in roles where they're like street hustlers and they're super powerful and they're really charismatic and they've got women on them and they run the streets. It's one of those kinds of things. And the, the reason they call them black exploitation is because on the one hand, almost the entire cast is black. On the other hand, they're kind of treading in stereotypes about what kind of roles they fill in society. But you had Jim Kelly play, uh, was it Williams was his name? phenomenal and dude it has all these themes of social inequality in them you know where you see those poor people living on the water in another dragon and then Williams catches onto the boat he's like ghettos are the same everywhere and the whole reason he got there is because the cops had stopped him unfairly called him some racist names I, I, I had to look that racist name up that they called him I didn't know it but by the way that whole scene I realized watching I'm like I kind of wonder if Sylvester Stallone just watched this movie and decided I'm going to make Rambo because it's essentially the same thing that happens to Rambo. The cops just stop him for no reason. He beats up cops and next thing you know, like, it, you know, craziness ensues. Yeah. But it's exactly that moment of uh, this guy was doing nothing whatsoever. He just happened to be black. So the cops decided to uh, like mess him up, you know, round him up for no reason. 
So anyway, uh, you see that. Then it has this, you know, this guy who's addicted to gambling, want to bet. I forget his, I forget his name, his character's name. And then you have Bruce Lee, who is, you know, and, and dude, here's what's amazing about like Enter the Dragon, like the way the direction works in terms of landscaping, in terms of colors, where you have these guys who are all wearing white geese, but then the participants have these yellow geese, and then Bruce was a level above. By virtue of what he wore, you know, he didn't succumb to all of that. He was, he saw himself as a level above and no one really questioned it. So like through costume design, you got a sense of hierarchy. Um, Han, I thought, you know, he seemed like an old man. I, it was hard for me to take him a little bit seriously. He could move a little bit, the guy who was the actor. And he was certainly sinister as hell. Uh, I liked his museum that he was taking people through. Um, so he came across as less menacing than before. But I'm going to say Enter the Dragon's the better movie. And the reason why I'm going to say that is because it is a much more complex movie that deals with much more complex ideas and has significantly greater sophistication through its direction and cinematography. It's just a better movie in virtually every way. Yeah, I, that's what you realize kind of in the rewatch. It's all the things you mentioned, like all the cultural and societal themes that go along with it. It's a martial arts movie. But it's also kind of a crime movie. Right. It's kind of a secret agent movie. Yeah, like, dude, they, and they would play the music when he was out on Hans Island. You yeah. know, when he had the rope and the black suit, the music they were playing was like that spy movie sort of baseline thing you always hear. Yeah. So you had this like weird mix of like, yes, there are these fight scenes, and but Bruce Lee is like snaking around every which way, He's <laughs> grabbing cobras and, <laughs> and throwing them into office buildings, breaking into this secret hideout of Han. Um, and by the way. Probably one of the greatest fight sequences ever is that fight, is that cave fight in the bottom. Yeah, dude. What did you like about it? Because I had some issues with it. Here's the thing: I always, no matter what, that movie might be playing in the background, but when it gets to that scene, I stop everything I'm doing and just rewatch. Bruce Lee is a just so cool. Even if you don't believe like in the traditional martial arts, he makes it look like it works at all times. <laughs> all the different weapons that he's using and all the different styles he's using to beat these guys up. I, I love that scene. I will always love that fight scene. So the, the one thing I liked about the scene was it was a unique setting to be, first of all. Second of all, the weapons all escalated. So first he has the staff, then the staff is essentially two parts, and then it becomes nunchucks. And he starts, I mean, messing everybody. The only way they were able to stop him was just to isolate him with the walls that came down, right? Um, so that part was cool. But here's the thing about his fight scenes that I noticed, again, watching Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan is he's trying to, Jackie Chan's trying to portray a different image. Jackie Chan will use like if there's a trash can lid, he'll just use it randomly, you know, or if there's a piece of paper, he'll use the piece of paper randomly. He just uses whatever's around him. And if he gets hurt, you ever notice like Jackie Chan will like, "Oh, like he'll rub his face like, you know, like it actually stung." Bruce Lee was just landing one hit or quitters on everybody. Did you did you notice that? Always. <laughs> one shot, one shot, one shot, one shot. If a guy caught three shots, he got him real messed up. So there was like this real, um, I liked how the weapons escalated sort of over time, and he showed his superiority over them through this escalation. On the other hand, the fact that every fight was just a one-hitter quitter, to me, got a little bit weird. Plus, here's the other part about it. Have you noticed how Bruce Lee's fight scenes typically focus in on just him, and the guys who come in to attack him are just blurs, Right. You, you don't really have. You want to see him doing all the movement, like so you right. want to see what he's doing. But the framing of the camera will be just on him, and like the guys he's beating the shit out of, for the most part, not entirely, are incidental. Which is why I like the fight scene with, uh, um, what was his name, O'Hara, the dude with the scar yeah. on his face. Yep, I liked him because that one you could see both at the same time. Some of it was in slow motion, right when he had that long kick that pushed him into the the stands and whatnot. <laughs> it was very different than the fight scene underground. Which, by the way, that kick, even in slow motion, looks like it would break every single one of your ribs. Like, oh, yeah. It, it's so hard. I can't even imagine trying to take that, even as an actor from Lee. But you actually just reminded me of something. Early on in this movie, I had a weird moment. Um, the scene where you're finding out what happened to Bruce Lee's sister, how Han's men attacked her. Yeah. There was a moment there where she kicks one of the guys in the groin. And when I looked at the guy's face, I was like, oh, wait, is that Jackie Chan? And I had a moment of, God, I really hope that's Jackie Chan, because if it's not, I am super racist, and I feel really bad about this. But I was right. I went to IMDb. It is Jackie Chan. He is in the movie. Wait, which one is he? So uh, when all the Hans guys are 
going after Bruce Lee's sister, the very first person that she kicks in the groin, that's Jackie Chan. No way. Yeah, and he's actually in the cave scene as well. He's he's one of the guys that knows that moment where Bruce Lee kind of gets like an underhook and he has the guy by the hair. Yes. That's Jackie Chan too. No way. I did not know that. But dude, Luke, when I tell you I worried so much for a second, I looked at him like, is that Jackie Chan? God, I really hope that's Jackie Chan, man, because I got some problems if not. That's amazing. Uh, okay. Well, there you go. So for me, I had. Pro- I also liked the movie fight scene a little bit when it would take on like the first-person perspective, when it would square off against another person, and it would kind of be a little motion blurry. You know, you'd see a fist come at it, come at you, or a kick come up. You know, they played with direction on terms of fight scenes, um, but it's a more complex movie, and it's and it's it's better it's better executed. Rocky Four is hey, remember that guy Rocky? What if he fought someone who the U.S. the U.S. was beefing with at the time? Okay, all right, I guess that's cool. You know. By the way, now that you've rewatched, do you agree with my old hot take that? Drago is training way harder than Rocky. Than yeah. Rocky oh, yeah. Not even close. Not even close. <laughs> I, looked, I looked at IMDb. There was one little fact. It was, assuming Ivan Drago lifts standard plates, he presses 455 pounds for the standing press. Uh, Tell me Rocky's training harder, man. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, look, we got some breaking news I'd like to get to. So there you have it. Those That's our pick. But, of course, your pick is all that matters. All right, with that in mind, I appreciate everybody who tuned in today. Don't forget the email, LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. Tell your cheap friends about the podcast. Please go vote over the weekend. At MMA on SiriusXM on Twitter, at SiriusXM Fight Nation on Instagram. We'll be back on Monday with more reaction. And until then, all of your gains be loyal. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety, weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on SiriusXM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on SiriusXM.